a little bit over a week ago, I went hiking to Sugarloaf Mountain. I don't know if any of you have been there. I was expecting some huge mountain because I had looked at pictures and I've seen them online where you just see this beautiful view, which it was a spectacular view, but the mountain was not a huge mountain. I actually looked it up later on and on the list of all the mountains that are in Maryland, it comes all the way at the bottom. <laughs> so I was expecting this amazing hike, but it was still a good hike. Well, I get to the place, and since I've never been there before, I grabbed the map and I drove up. And I had heard about two different parking lots. There was the west parking lot and the east parking lot, and you could choose. And I couldn't remember anything that anybody said online about any of them, so I just chose the west one. I went there, and then I pulled out the map, and I started looking at what I was going to do. And I figured out, all right, well, there's a blue trail that kind of goes around the mountain and then takes you up to the summit. So I thought, all right, well, that would be a good one to try, right? So I went on the blue trail, but as I was walking, I realized it was just full of these families with kids, and I just thought, this is not a challenging hike. This is just a stroll through the park. So I was looking around to see if there was another hike that I could, another path that I could take that would actually take me to the summit, and it would be more of a challenge. And so on my right, as I'm walking, I see this path that's red, just marked red. And so I figured, I'm going to take that. And it definitely was a little bit more of a hike. I just got all the way to the summit, and it was beautiful. Just the view is spectacular. If you haven't been there, I recommend going just for the view. You just see for miles. And so I sat there, and I prayed for a little while and read, and then decided to go back down. Well, I figured that I would play it safe. I didn't really want to get lost on this mountain, because I, really, I obviously couldn't read the trails, because I couldn't even tell where the red one was on the map. And so I figured I would go back down the same trail, the red one, and then take the blue all the way back to the parking lot. So I headed back to where I thought I had come out, and I'm walking, I'm going down. And I'm walking, and then suddenly I realize, well, this doesn't exactly look familiar. It looks completely different, actually. And so I keep going down a little bit farther, and then I realize, oh, I'm not on the red trail. I'm on an orange trail. And I just figured, well, it'll take me somewhere. So I kept going. It was a really nice trail, actually. And so I just kept going down. Well, it actually took me down to the east parking lot instead of the west parking lot. So now I had to figure out how to go around the mountain so that I could get back to the west parking lot. But it was fun. It was a challenge. Have you ever found yourself on a life path, and suddenly that path just took a turn? Or instead of you, as you were expecting, you being on the red trail, you ended up on an orange trail? I think that we all have, right? Because we expect certain things in life to happen a certain way, and sometimes they just don't. And sometimes those paths are expected because we do expect, okay, we're going to take a turn here, and it's going to be like this, and it actually turns out to be different. We have a lot of teachers and new staff here who probably every year feels kind of like it's a new challenge. I remember when I was a teacher for three years teaching Bible, I thought that every year. It's a new challenge. There will be new experiences. There will be those turns in the road. 
There are students here who, for them, they're just starting their ninth year. Or maybe this is their new school for them. This is a new turn in the path. When I was in the youth Sabbath school this morning for a little while, I heard them going around the circle talking about sharing something that they had learned this week. And there was a freshman girl who said, I learned this week that high school is hard. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, I remember going to high school and I thought the exact same thing. So yes, there are many of us here who have new challenges ahead of us. And perhaps you are not part of a school, but there may also be challenges in your life, something that your life has taken a turn on that's different than what you expected. So what do we do when those things happen? Well, I believe that the, that the story of the three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, give us a good example on what to do when that happens, when life just takes a turn. So I want to take us through the story this morning. Daniel chapter 3. Go ahead and turn there with me. Daniel chapter 3. And we will begin with the first verse. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image at Salem of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its width six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And starts out by saying that the king made at Salem. Well, if you had been reading the book of Daniel from the start, you would have noticed that there has already been a mention of at Salem before in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, we've heard this before, it is a story of Nebuchadnezzar having a dream. And in this dream, he sees at Salem, and then Daniel has to tell him what he dreams, and then the interpretation of it. And he says, oh king, this dream, this, this statue that you saw had its head of gold, and then the next part was of silver, and the next part of bronze, and then iron for the legs, and iron and clay for the feet. And you, O oh king, are the golden head. But your kingdom will not last forever. There will be another one that will come after that, and another one. And then in the dream, he saw a stone that struck this statue and it was shattered. And then it grew into a mountain. And Daniel told him that mountain is the kingdom of God and it's the only kingdom that will last forever. Well, if you look at the images and the imagery through the words that are used, you know that there is a connection here between that Selim and this Selim because it comes right after each other. And so it is very possible that the king is creating this new Tselem out of gold fully because he doesn't want his kingdom to only be the head. It says that it was 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, which is a very disproportionate measurement. It would be 90 feet high and only 9 feet wide. Not exactly something that you would expect to have a large enough of a base to hold the statue. If you think of it in modern times, it is actually smaller than the Statue of Liberty. But during this time, it was a very tall statue. So some people propose that perhaps it stood against one of the walls in Babylon because it had to be supported somehow. There's no way it would have just stood on its own. 
Now let's continue. We are going to read the first part of the story and I want you to pay attention to words that repeat. Because especially in Daniel chapter three, Daniel himself is creating a message for the reader through the words that he uses and the way that he uses them. So pay attention to the words. It says, and King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image. You notice that repetition, right? Of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, to you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down, the word there is nephal, and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not nephal and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. You would have probably noticed that one of the words that repeats all the time is the word set up. Well, there is only one other time that this word appears, and that's also in chapter 2. And that is in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. Go ahead and look there with me. It says, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. So God is setting up, but King Nebuchadnezzar, it says if he's saying, oh, no, 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 God is not going to be the one who's going to set up. I will be the one who will be setting up. And so now it's repeated over and over and over that that's exactly what he's doing. He is attempting to take the place of God. But why this threat? Why would he need to have all these people come there and fall down before this image? And if not, then he will throw them into the furnace. Well, most likely the setting to the story is year 594. And in this year, there was an insurrection in Babylon, a rebellion against the king of some of his officials. And that's why it's only mentioning all of the officials. He has all of the officials gathering together to this image, to this statue. Because he doesn't want the same thing to happen again. He had to go and squelch this rebellion, and he's afraid that someone else will be encouraged to do the same thing. And so he's going to make sure that he will enforce loyalty. And they will all come there together, and he will create unity through making them fall down. Unfortunately, force has never created unity. What it does instead is creates conformity. Because they are all doing the exact same thing over and over and over. They hear the sound, they fall down and worship. And they hear the sound again and they fall down and worship. They hear the sound, fall down and worship. The exact same thing. 
Now, the repetition of all the words that are in this story is another way that Daniel's trying to show us that this is all about mechanical action. This is a nation of robots who just do whatever they are told. There is no thinking involved. There is no heart involved. This is not about life. This is all about obedience because I say you do. And it seems that it worked. Because now it says in verse 7 that all of the people who were there fell down and worshipped this image. But then in the next verse, we find out that, well, maybe that's not exactly true. Now certain Chaldeans come forward, it says. These Chaldeans have already appeared before, also in chapter 2, where you would think they would be grateful because Daniel and his friends saved their lives because the king said, I'm going to kill all of them because they can't interpret my dream. But they're not. They're jealous that the Jews got their positions. And so now it says they went and they accused the Jews. The words used there literally say they ate the pieces of the Jews. What does that mean? It's an idiomatic expression that was used to say that whenever you maliciously accused someone, it was as if you were taking bites out of them. And they come to the king and they say, King, you made this decree, and everyone who, who does not follow it, well then, they were going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. But you have these Jews who are not paying attention to you. They don't care about your decree. They're not loyal to you. They are your high officials, by the way, but they don't care about loyalty. And Nebuchadnezzar reacts in rage, and he calls them over, and he thinks that, well, maybe he needs to explain it to them, that maybe they didn't hear it, so he says it to them again. Tells them that if they do not fall down and worship the image, then they will be thrown into the burning fiery furnace. And then he ends with this line, and who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? If you lived in Mesopotamia, in Babylon, you would agree with the king. Because they believe that all, all gods were valid, and all gods were real, and they were to be worshipped, so you could choose whoever you wanted. However, not all gods were equal. And they were judged based on how powerful they were, based on what the king, what the God did for his people. Well, what did God do for the people of Israel? He let them be in captivity to the Babylonians. So in their eyes, their God, the God of Israel, was not a powerful God. It says if Nebuchadnezzar is saying, how can you even think that your God is going to deliver you? It's impossible. You are in slavery right now. What do you think? He's going to suddenly do something different? And then they respond with just a masterpiece 
of an answer. Every single time I read it, I just think, I'm in awe at how they answer. And I think, I want this kind of faith. I want to be this dedicated to God. They say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, we have already shown how we're answering. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, if he does not deliver us, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. And then the king, now it says that he is full of fury, and he commands the furnace to be seven times hotter, which obviously no one's going to measure. It's just meant to the max. It was in hot, so hot, in fact, that when these mighty men, these strong men that he calls to carry the three friends in and throw them in, they perish. The furnace that they had, they would have thrown them in, would have fit several people. It would have been a large kiln that was used to fire bricks. And it had an opening on top, so they would have thrown them from the top. And then it had another opening on the bottom where they would have retrieved the bricks. And now the king sits down and he's watching what's going to happen because he can see through the other opening. But before we read that, I want you to see verse 23. It says, And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down. They nephal, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Until this point, if you noticed, the word to fall down has been repeated several times. It has actually been repeated six times, exactly. And now, this is the seventh time that it's repeated. Until this point, it's always the people who were told to fall down, and everybody does, except for the three Hebrews. While everyone else falls down, they're standing. And now, when they are to fall down into the burning, fiery furnace where no one else wants to be, they're the only ones who fall down. But that is the right time to fall down. Now the king is watching and he just gets out of it, off from his throne because he's amazed at what he sees. Didn't we throw in three men? Yes, sure, of course we did, O king. Well, but look, I see four of them. And they're unbound. They're just walking around. And the fourth is like the Son of God. Did Nebuchadnezzar know who he was seeing? Probably not. He just knows that this was a divine person. And he calls him the son of God. Well, if you study this passage and you study this phrase especially, the son of God, you see that it is used for Jesus. And so what Bible scholars believe is that truly it was Jesus who came down to be with them in the fiery furnace. 
that he himself was present with them. And then the king calls them out and says, come out, servants of the Most High God. Everyone is gathering around them, seeing that nothing has happened to them. Everyone is amazed. And he, in the end, says, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who delivered his servants, who trusted in him. And then again, he repeats in the end, he's the only God who can deliver like this. So now I want to go back to my original question. When your life takes a turn, what can we learn from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego about how to handle those situations? Number one, there's something that I see in this story. And that is that when our lives take a turn, God is not surprised. He is not the one who it takes by surprise, who suddenly is out of a plan. He always has a plan. And we can trust in the fact that he still has a way out. He still has some way to deliver us. Number two, when life takes a turn, there is a wrong time to fall down, and there is a right time to fall down. And I don't mean by that just martyrdom, although I do believe that that is part of it. What I mean by that is this. When the three Hebrews lived in Israel, they probably had an amazing life. Parents who loved them, who taught them everything they knew, who taught them about God's love, because then they continued to do that. But then the Babylonian army comes and steals all of that from them. And they have to leave their homes to never see their families again. They're teenagers. And now when they get to Babylon, scholars also believe that most likely they were castrated because they were to become eunuchs for the king, which meant they would never have families and never have children. Now imagine them being called up in front of this image. If they had said, well, why exactly would we not fall down in front of this image? Look at all the things that have happened in our lives. Have you seen God really present in our lives? Has God really delivered us from this and this and this? No. and no one would have blamed them. But they didn't. Because they knew something that many of us probably miss in this story. That it is not just about the three Hebrews being dedicated to God but that it is God who was dedicated to them. And he had a plan to deliver them in the fire. And so that leads me to the third one. 
when your life takes a turn. Trust God to show up. When my dad was in his late 20s, I was, I was just born that year, and he came here to the United States to study for a year. And he came, went straight to Andrews University. He was there for that year, and during that year, for his spring break, which was during March, a friend of his took him to Pennsylvania for that break because he had nowhere else to go. But at the end of that break, he didn't have any money, and he didn't have a way to get back to Andrews University because his friend wasn't going back, he had to go somewhere else. And so he just told him, just drop me off here and I'm going to hitchhike my way back. And that's what his friend did. He just dropped him off and then he was hitchhiking. Well, he tried to hitchhike, it wasn't working. He was dropped off sometime in the early afternoon and he stood there by the road, and every single car would just pass him by. No one would stop. And then the afternoon turned to late afternoon, and then to the evening, and he finally decided he was gonna go to the highway. Maybe somebody will stop there, but the cops then told him, you have to leave. So he went to one of the exits, and he kept hitchhiking, and by now, it was nighttime, and it was dark, and it was getting later and later and later to the, where he could see the sky full of stars. There were no clouds in the sky. And now he's getting worried. And he starts really thinking about what is going on with him. He has no money. He's lonely. His family is across the world. Hasn't seen them in a really long time. And now he's sitting here on the side of the road and no one will take him where he needs to go. And so he starts praying. And he's just talking to God about what is going on. And then he said that he, if he felt like as if he heard a voice, just a whisper in his ear. And the whisper said this verse. It's Isaiah 59.1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. And when he heard this verse, he was also impressed to look up. And as he looked up, suddenly realized that right above him was a cloud in the shape of a hand. It was the only thing in the sky. And he felt so encouraged to realize that God had not left him. He was still there for him. The next car that came picked him up and took him all the way to Andrews University. But we don't need clouds to know that God is with us. Because he promises wherever you go, Whatever you do, I am with you. And all we need to do is decide to trust that he will show up.